So what in your life very early was the first imprint of a brand that made an impact on you? Yeah, the first one that I can remember having a big impact on me was Fisher-Price. And it was Fisher-Price because I really wanted that little house. And I remember the day my dad just brought it home. It wasn't my birthday. It wasn't anything. He brought home that house with the little farm animals and the things that could move around and you could play make-believe. And But yeah, and it just kind of stuck with me as a brand that meant something more than just a toy. And I think about my kids on their damn phones now and I think, go get a Fisher-Price house. (laughs) Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Kristen Lemkow, the chief marketing officer for J.P. Morgan Chase, an enormous U.S.-based bank. 62 million households use Chase Bank. $110 billion in revenue, so a really, really big organization, which has an incredible purpose. I've known Kristen for years. What I love about her is the human approach she takes to her job, to J.P. Morgan Chase, to her people. She's one of the most remarkable leaders I know because of her honesty, her accessibility, and her vulnerability, and her sense of humor. Here's my conversation with Kristen Lemkow. So... Kristen, you and I are both married mm-hmm. and we're both renovating a house. <laughs> so what I want you to talk about- Are you about, still happily married? <laughs> absolutely, because I abrogate all decisions to the one who's much more talented to make yes. those decisions, which is my wife, Kathleen. Yeah. I know so, someone who needs to hear this podcast. Well, maybe I can. <laughs> Very good. Our first listener. <laughs> so what have you learned in this renovation process that has made you an even better CMO, Chief Marketing um, Officer? God, that is a fascinating question. I'll tell you, when, you, when you're in these jobs that you and I have been in, your time management is on a razor's edge, right? Everything is kind of down to the minute of air traffic control. And, you know, some days you feel like you've got it going on. And some days the whole thing just like goes to hell. Every day goes to hell now <laughs> with the kitchen <laughs> renovation process because you have to make these decisions. I was telling Lucy, who's with me on the way over, you know, we had like an epic hour and a half discussion about cabinet pulls. Um, so I think it's really forced even more rigor around time management, which is basically the key to doing this job or any job well, uh, and uh, and how to resolve conflict very quickly. <laughs> yes. Fast decision making, right? Yes. And trust. That's right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and for my husband and me, he stays home. I work. We've got, you know, a general division of labor, but something like this kind of throws off the whole operating model and you got to reset. So when will you be done? Never. Like most people. (laughs) The original goal was 4th of July. I think we'll be done with one room by the 4th of July and the rest may take the entire summer. So we're doing a historical home in Coronado. So we have all the constraints of a historical home. So we'll talk about that later because that's I'm using lots of my skills on influence and persuasion and storytelling. There is a real micro segment of people going through renovation that is unserved (laughs) of how to manage it. We'll start Mm -hmm. a new business there. Yeah. So I want to ask you a few, uh, kind of as an icebreaker, I'm going to throw out a few terms, uh, initiatives at JPMorgan Chase, and I want you to just react with 
whatever comes to your mind, word, phrase, feeling, emotion, whatever it might be. So I'm just going to go, and, um, and the first one I'm going to say is advancing cities. Impact. Why? Um, I think it's one of many initiatives, but it's a dramatic one that shows that the size and scale of our company can solve real world and social problems in a way that few companies can. It's not just PR. It is really having impact. Next one, new skills at work. Proud. And this is a program where you are preparing. Yeah, we were, I think, ahead of the, the curve on this one of understanding that there are people in the population, particularly a lot of young men who aren't being skilled and trained in the skills that we need today. And there will be elements of the workforce that could get left behind if we don't get actively involved in how you reskill these people. Okay. Chase my home. Faster. Why? It's we should have built it faster. Okay, good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs of Color Fund. Proud. Mm-hmm. Necessary. Okay. That's mama. Hashtag that's mama. Serena. Yeah. Very nice. Great story behind that one. And the last one is customer. Obsessed. Say more about that. Um, we're shamelessly ripping off Amazon's language because uh, they talk about customer obsession in a way that's really clarifying. I think a lot of people talk about customer service or customer experience. And we made a decision about two years ago to really shift to obsessed because as much as we talked about customer experience, we were still thinking about it from a product point of view. I want to talk about my customer for my product and not really, really re-engineering ourselves to be much more customer-centric, customer-focused, customer-obsessed which a lot of companies talk about, it is hard to do. It sure is. So mm-hmm. what could others learn from your journey from thinking the mindset of customer experience to customer obsessed? How, what's changed within your organization and what could others learn from that? Um, yeah, there's a lot to learn. And I certainly don't know that we have cracked the code of getting it exactly right. It comes down to um, old-fashioned data and insights. I think when you think about the customer, you have to look at the real insights. Customers don't want to be treated like products. For us in particular, they don't want to be treated like an account. They know that Chase knows them, particularly because we have all of their data, and they need to be shown that we care, that we have the data and that we care. And then the data just shows how many of the individual customers have each other's products, and we know that. It's unknowable in a lot of CPG companies or beauty companies, we know exactly who our customers are and exactly what products they have. And when you understand that it really is one customer and your job is to have them become a customer once and then deepen with them as their life progresses, it becomes a different exercise than just acquisition marketing. So I just named a number of initiatives that you're, you're there in the market and you use very emotional words to react to them. I just read the annual letter from your CEO, Jamie Dimon, and it just, you know, it made me feel like here's an organization. It was like a manifesto mm-hmm. to change the world, improve the world. So to me, it was very moving, provocative, comprehensive. So what is it like to be the CMO of a company with that kind of impact and potential impact? where you're taking on some of the most intractable issues in our world that are not being addressed. That blows my mind. I mean, do you think about that in the morning when you get up? Does oh, that yeah. 
So tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm tremendously grateful to be in this position. And when I think about what else I would want to do, I couldn't imagine another job I would want to have. In CEO jo- CMO jobs, I think I have one of the biggest. There's a lot of big jobs out there and a lot of people I really admire and great companies. Um, I think I have the best CEO to work for, potentially of our generation, forget just our category. And we have a company that makes and produces something that really matters. I'm sure I could get fired up about sneakers and things that other brands make. And I incredibly admire that work. But, you know, people care a whole lot about their money. And when your brand purpose is to help people make the most of their money, it is a a daunting and uh, incredibly exciting thing to come to work for every day. Like I will be at this company until I feel like I'm either blocking someone or they throw me out but I love the work. I don't fantasize about going on a beach. My CEO said to me though, my first day in the job as P&G CMO, he said, just be careful. You will never outrun this job. Don't even try. That's true. That's great advice. So make a few choices about where you will have lasting impact, where you uniquely can have impact and focus on that. And just everything else is less important. Do a few things well. Yeah. At the end of the year, People only remember about 10% of what you did and getting really focused about what that is. I mean, one of the things I do every week, I've got a a pad, like a good old fashioned pad of paper Mm. with quadrants in it. And one side says strategic. The other side says tactical. One says personal and another says stuff that has to get done, which is different than tactical. Just crap. You've got to cross off your list. But it's an important way of holding yourself accountable. Am I really focused on the strategic stuff? The five things that I've got to get over the line for my boss, or am I allowing myself to get pulled into other people's time and other people's demands or other people's careers, which is hard because I'm a giver. Like I want to help right. everybody, but- But your inbox can control your outbox, right? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a very similar system. I, I've kept it for years. Uh, Stephen Covey came into P&G years ago okay. and talked about his system. And a couple things stayed with me. One is put every major role in your life- and every week, think about two or three things that are really critical for that role, whether it's a dad, a son, yeah. a brother, a community leader, you know, a corporate leader. And that way, you just kind of keep your, your, your scope wide. Yeah. And you realize all the important roles in your life. You don't let one of them swallow up the others. So I, it's funny. I do something similar. I work with a woman named Lisa McCarthy who has a system called Lisa. Fast Forward. Yes. And she fabulous. Has, it's amazing. And it's actionable. She has you write a letter to yourself a year in advance with your life as you most boldly imagine it to be as if it's already happened. So I've lost 10 pounds. I've grown the credit card business by 5%. I've, you know, went away with my husband for three days without kids. You finished that renovation? I finished the renovation and stayed happily married. Whatever those (laughs) things are, I made, you know, I did two field trips with my kids. Mm -hmm. And then you have a system that forces you to spend your time on those things. Yeah. And hold yourself accountable and get a partner that holds you accountable. And it makes an unbelievable difference in not just getting consumed by the noise. So you talked about your ritual in the quadrant. Yeah. You, you know, tell me about your days. I mean, do you get up early to exercise or read? Yeah. I mean, how do you, what are some of the rituals you have that you think keep you you know, fresh and on top of things. Yeah. And every day is chaos. Yeah, I know. So I think I we all start yeah. with, here's my here's, intention yeah. of my ritual and forgiving yourself when you know it's all going to um, derail. Uh, I typically get up early, which the younger me would have just laughed at. I'm up at 
525. Mm-hmm. I'm on a 630 train. I'm at the office by 715 before with coffee. FaceTime my kids. What That's before my children what wake kind of up. coffee? Starbucks. Okay. Vanilla latte with okay. two pumps for less sugar. <laughs> um, I FaceTime the kids so I see them get ready in the morning. And then I don't book any meetings before nine if I can avoid it. And that helps me feel like I'm in control of my day. I've cleared the backlog. I've had some brain time, which is rare, to sort of set mm-hmm. how I need to spend my time that week, how I need to spend my time in particular that day, where I've got free time that I need to respond to. Uh, I do something similar on Sunday nights. I just look at the week, make sure the time's being mm-hmm. well spent, and focus on like three big things that have to get over the line, which helps. But then, you know, I got to get home to meet with the builder because there's a gas pipe in the wall, <laughs> or oh, yeah. my daughter dislocated her knee, and all of those things happen too. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. super. So I want to get into the CMO role a bit now. Yeah, that's where uh, I'm going to pick your brain too. Okay, You're the well, one who aced it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm still a work in progress. Well, we all are, right? <laughs> but I would like to you to talk a little bit about, you know, you're the chief marketing officer of this incredible institution that's years old, that is making a huge difference. What's the work? Yeah. I mean, what do you do? If you had to put it into a pie chart or buckets, I mean, yep. what do you do? Uh, I'd say it's, I don't know that I have the percentages right, but it's maybe 25%, I mean, really focused on the big growth initiatives, mm-hmm. like the big things. And there's, you know, five of them that I'm really focused on driving this year. So an and example of one that you can talk about would be? Uh, ensuring that we've got alignment with uh, the, our, our core segments and the products that we offer among those segments, and that it's not just people individually marketing. It makes sense as a package to the Got consumer. Uh, back to the idea that you should only become a customer once. Yeah. Then there's a lot of, I had to kind of reframe in my head, um, there's just a chunk of my job that's solving problems because you can get depleted it, yeah. during the course of a day by the number of people walking in your office and dropping grenades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also had to appreciate, thank God, they're coming in my office and dropping grenades instead of hiding them in a pretty box mm-hmm. and then it blows up later. If people feel comfortable coming to me with the problem, that's a good thing. But resetting, this is my job to actually solve their problems. Um, and then some of it's people. And then some of it is just responding to my senior team and partners on things they need. Yeah. So who are your most important thought partners You know, yep. in this life you lead, or internally and externally? Yeah. Um, there's a group of people who I really rely on inside of J.P. Morgan. Um, I'm absolutely blessed that some of my best friends in the world are at that company. Uh, We're incredibly privileged that a number of the women in the biggest jobs that I interact with are not only good friends, they are women. Hmm. The woman who runs the consumer bank, T. Duckett, the woman who runs the credit card business, Jen Peepsack, we're all very close friends. Our kids are around the same age. And they're the ones who I will go to to be my best, worst, messiest, most exposed self because I know they'll help me get better. My team is the best team I've ever had. I rely on them deeply. I try to be really honest with them about what I'm struggling with. I don't believe that sometimes you go into a meeting and everything's a pre-read and everything's an agenda. Sometimes it's just, I'm struggling with this and I don't know the way out. Let's spitball for a while. And then there's amazing people in this industry. Linda Boff is a great friend. Carolyn Everson is a great friend. 
there's you know the Pam Kaufman from Nickelodeon, Facebook, yeah, yep, Pam Kaufman at Nickelodeon, Ross Martin at Blackbird, like these are people who will be in my life forever. We'll have to get them on the podcast. They're all amazing. Yeah. So you said a few times in there that you solve problems, people come to you, you have meetings where we just lay it out and kind of brainstorm about how to tackle this. I call it the big messy meeting. Well, how do you create an environment where people feel okay about that? Yeah, and I I think I've needed to learn uh, some of this to talk less because when I come in and state my opinion, then everything's going to go around that. Um, But sit back, let the conversation flow, um, don't interrupt, call people out. I've really learned that some people need to be drawn out. I think this is particularly true of women and people of color, and I've spent time trying to understand why that is, but pausing the meeting and actually ensuring that somebody's going to talk more. Um, but there's a great Jeff Bezos line where he says, you've got to debate vigorously and then commit and make your decision at the end of the meeting, not at the beginning of the meeting. Right. Uh, and I think I thought when I was younger as a leader that you had to sort of be decisive and show your point of view instead of like kick back and wait, wait to hear people out before you do. Yeah. Yeah. So you're five and a half years as CMO. Mm hmm. When you came into it, did you feel prepared? No. No. God, I hope no one does. Now when you look back at it, you know, what are the new, how are you different? What are the new skills yeah. or approach to life in your business that you've developed in it those five It was interesting because when, when um, this was a newly created job two years before I got it, and uh, they brought in an outside candidate, and at the time I was angry. I thought I should have had the job and- you know, got all fussed about it. And when I look back on it, it actually was one of those moments in your career where a bad thing happens that ultimately turns out to mm-hmm. be a good thing. There are a lot of those. Um, because I really wasn't ready. I really wasn't. I needed two more years to learn the business and build the relationships that were going to make me successful. I still had a ton to learn when I got there. And then at the time, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is a monster of a disease. And we ultimately lost that battle, but I was there. Uh, I was there during the year and a half that he was sick. And I don't think I could have been either as committed to the job or committed to going to every chemo session with him had that happened at the time. So when I did get the job, I was just enormously grateful. I, I had had that period of my life happen in the way I think it needed to for me and um, was able to focus my energy in learning the business, the new things that I needed to take on. And I remember when Jamie sat me down and was like giving me the job, he sort of looked kind of scared actually. And he said, this is uh, very different than what you're used to because as a communications person, you're used to making the subjective call. You have to rely on your judgment entirely to make a split second decision quickly and ask no one on behalf of the company. And he said, you're going to have to shift your headset to being around analytics, data, partnership, KPI performance. And he was crystallizing what was happening to CMOs at the time, which is you don't get to be the almighty call on casting and Mm -hmm. she should wear a red shirt, not a blue shirt. And, you know, you're Svengali spinning up ingenious things. It really is much more about the customer telling you what to do. Yeah. So when he laid that out for you, did you learn that on the job? Did you do anything yeah. to accelerate your capability in those areas? Yeah. Um, I had to learn not just really how to do the math behind some of the decisions, because I didn't come up as a consumer marketer. Right. 
um, I, the technology piece was the one I think that stunned me the most of how much I had to deeply understand my tech stack and how to operationalize that was going to be the key to everything. Mm -hmm. The whole point of shifting from product to customer is right. actually a tech job yeah. of driving personalization at scale. Um, so I spent a lot of time with people in the industry who knew this well, who could teach me. I did go to some conferences early on to sure. figure out if I could learn. Um, but ultimately, you end up learning from people. And Which you have partners to find... were most important for you to develop your fluency um, and your strategy? Uh, I have a CTO who's, mm -hmm. I, I call Yoda. I would be hopeless without him. Um, but outside the company, I, I, I learn a lot from Ben Lair. Yeah, uh, sure. I learn a lot from Gary Vee. I learn a lot from David Droga. Mm -hmm. um, we have an amazing team. I learn a lot from people like you, Jim. I read your mm -hmm. book. I remember thought, Thank oh my you. God, how did this guy have it figured out? I'm never going to have it figured out. No, and he here didn't. we are. <laughs> he just had to put it in a book, right? It lo looks all figured yeah. out in a book, but it's not, it's messy. Uh, and you have to sort of, uh, Lindsay Vaughn says this, stay humble, stay hungry. And it's constant. Yep. Like even now, it's your, I'm, con I'm now AI, machine learning, how to build model-driven personalization decision engines. It's very different than the skills we all came up with. Right. So I want you to tell me, this is an impossible question. Good. Five and a half years. What was your best day on the job? My best day on the job. You know what? It was maybe, there's, there's been a number of them, but I think it was when Jamie asked me and his chief of staff, Judy Miller, to take over his senior leadership meeting. And it was because we were complaining about it. Like it had gotten to, and I was like, thank God I didn't yeah. complain about the cafeteria <laughs> that day. Um, and it maybe was when, it might've even been this last one. It was either this last one or the one before where you realize the power of that meeting is actually getting the top 250 people of this company, the people who are running the place, including Jamie, aligned on a strategy. So it's not just a boondoggle or sure. entertainment. It's really getting aligned on the strategy and feeling like we did that mm -hmm. and having him acknowledge it because a great day in marketing is a great day in marketing. I right. love it, but a great day where you feel like you are helping run the company is a whole next level thing. Yeah, fantastic. Great story. Yeah. You're an optimistic person. Is there a worst day you've had? Um, yeah, it feels like there's a lot of worst days. You know, the worst days like there was, there was, I don't know that it was one in particular, but certainly my dark days on the job was when we had spent two or three years trying to drive personalization and it was my personal initiative and I made a lot of noise and gotten a lot of people on board. Uh, and it was the day I realized we were going to fail that time around. We picked the wrong tech provider. We had the wrong people mm -hmm. in the job, like up and down. We had the wrong person doing tech. We had the wrong person managing it. Or at least I didn't understand yeah, deeply oh enough yeah. that I had been easily led down the wrong path. And I kind of had to go admit I had bombed this time around and reset and hold people accountable to, to make it happen. It was right before Christmas. So it was like all, yeah. Those, yeah. all those moments. But, you know, looking back on it, wouldn't be where we are now. Wouldn't have the team I have on the ground wouldn't have pounded the table to get the right tech guy there yeah. and you, you grow into it. Yeah. Those, yeah. Those tough moments. But you know, I mean, there's like, there've been others. 2008 was no, I mean, I wasn't CMO then, but that was no day at the beach. Right. The whale was not yeah. fun. I mean, there've been many sort of dark corporate days sure. as opposed to dark personal days. Yeah. Last question about the CMO job. 
you know, after you pass this on someday to your successor, yep. what do you want people to say about you? Yeah. You know, I think I want them to say she made the, the company wouldn't be what it is without her. Not just marketing wouldn't or mm-hmm. she inspired people or that's all part of something. That's all part of the company wouldn't be the same if this one person wasn't mm-hmm. there. Steve Burke actually has a great speech about how mm-hmm. one person can make such a difference in the company. And he talks about Frank Wells at Disney and when he died. Well, how Satya so at Microsoft many, right now. Exactly. And I, I would like to be thought of as one of those people. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. My last day or when I announced I was leaving P&G, I had like 40 calls to make before anything broke publicly. And I, I called Dan Wyden, who was a really interesting partner, yep. head to Wyden Kennedy. And it was silence on the phone. And I said, Dan? And he said, no, you can't go. He said, you are P&G. So I thought, well, it was very touching, but, yeah. you know, but that's the that's sorts of things want. we want to hear. Exactly. Well, and the beauty we were in of, it for the right reasons. The beauty of the CMO job now is you're, you're not boxed in. No, it's um, wide open. Because it's now becoming customer experience and- Culture. You know, I, I manage part of AI machine learning for our company. It's employee experience. It's technology, it's operations, it's product. Your your boundaries are unlimited if you can lean into that in a constructive way. Because obviously there are other people who have domains that that sit outside of your direct control. But it's an incredibly exciting time to be in the job if that doesn't scare you. All right. I want to flip into some discussion about important questions. We're going to kind of <laughs> helicopter up and talk about some interesting questions in our industry. And the first one is one that's near and dear to my heart, and that's brand purpose. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? You know, I think some people thought it was fluffy, a fad, but it's the number one word in the marketer's vocabulary, according to the ANA, the Big Trade Association. So what, what do you think brands can really do now that it's out there, everyone's trying it? How can they differentiate on it? Yeah, I think it's huge, right? Of course, you were the godfather of this, but uh, you know, our brand purpose is to help people make the most of their money uh, and to help America become more financially healthy. And I think it's becoming more it's critical purpose. because I th- originally brand purpose was the anchor for a lot of your advertising and your content and the marketing product. It's now becoming critical to how you run the company. Like most companies, we're going through a transition where we are trying to become much more of an e-commerce company. We want more direct mm-hmm. sales off of our channels instead of having to go through our intermediaries, our Google or affiliates or, or sure. other things other than our own stores and our own channels. And the only way we're really going to win that is by the customer understanding the brand and differentiating in their decision if your product is inherently commoditized. And and so if you're not able to influence the consumer through traditional advertising, which is changing like no other time, they have to deeply understand the brand purpose in the product. Yeah. So where are the gaps now? What would you like to see in the industry for your own company to advance brand purpose to purpose? 3.0. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest change in the industry now is uh, with the shift from consumers to linear to digital media, 
um, the mistake marketers have made is assuming that the interruptive form of an ad, which a consumer will accept in linear TV as the trade-off for the free entertainment experience, is not the consumer that's in a digital active state and is one tap away from an infinite amount of content. And so instead, we are interpreting brand purpose through advertising that the consumer is now seeing as a tax on their time. And that model has to change. It has to be much more about how the consumer can discover your Mm -hmm. product or service or brand and relate to the why you're doing it, not just why you want to sell it. Yeah. So moving on from purpose, I want to talk about lifestyle brands. So Peloton, Orange Theory, Nike, Target, BMW, you know, they're brands that have become sort of a lifestyle. When you say them, something comes to mind very, very vividly. So how do brands do that? And when does that happen? Yeah. Well, I can talk a little bit about our experience with the Sapphire brand because that's We've watched that brand co- come from a credit card brand to James be- Corden is sort of your spokesperson. He is. Right? I know that contract has expired okay. and he's but now he has been. with con- um, coffee. He was, yeah. Um, but we've seen that brand move from just a, a strong credit card brand to something that is becoming much more like a lifestyle brand. Mm-hmm. And our gateway into that is that it's a, a travel product. Right, right. Um, but it has come to mean something more than that. It's not your dad's card. Uh, it's um, the card for people who like to discover things. And so we have all of these things. What is Sapphire? What isn't it? It's a community, not a club. Uh, It's um, not ostentatious. It's, uh, you know, for people who like to go to an Airbnb and eat in a hole in the wall. Mm -hmm. And in that, it changed our marketing play because we put everything into that product launch into the product. So we had a high premium high rewards value, and um, uh, no committed advertising behind it. We just dropped it in the market and didn't say anything about it. And the blogs picked it up, Mm -hmm. and then Refer a Friend picked it up. And all of a sudden, this this became the thing that you had if you were in the know. But it was the first time we sort of threw everything into the product design itself and then let the market take care of itself. So the lesson on it would be that you designed the uh, Incredible product. Design a badass You understood product. your customers really, really deeply. Yep. And the importance of travel and experiences. And then you got behind, you just let the people who loved it. Do yeah. Your- the key consumer insight was millennials want experiences, not stuff. Right. Right. And then you build a product around that and you let the product sell itself. Yeah, it's a beautiful you story. Know, consumers don't like to be interrupted. They don't like to be told what to buy. And the best lifestyle brands can deliver that. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about talent. And athletes, uh, musicians, actors, you know, and how do you decide how to align talent with your brand? Yeah, Um, it's hard, Mm -hmm. but we, um, on athletes, we align it to our sports and entertainment strategy, which is around arenas that can deliver both the paid media visibility and money can't buy type of experiences for the wholesale clients, for the high net worth clients. And uh, then we align with the key athlete for that property, because if we're going to sign up to partner with the Golden State Warriors and Steph Curry goes and does a deal with a competitor, we've just diluted our equity. The same is true with the U.S. Open and Serena Williams. And we pick athletes that align not only with the brand and the brand values, but really care about the mission. We will not hire another athlete or actor 
or celebrity who does not believe in the purpose of helping people make the most of their money. Mm-hmm. The fascinating one was when Kevin Hart reached out to us and said, I've got a story about money and I care and I really want to help people with their financial health and the way I've helped them with their physical health because he has a whole brand around mm-hmm. physical fitness. And so we sat down and had a number of conversations about how to get Kevin involved around the purpose, not will you sell our cash back card? Right. It was what's the whole full relationship? And that yeah. meant a lot. Yeah. I noticed you tweeted how beautiful the Dwayne Wade tribute oh was that Budweiser did. It doesn't mm-hmm. get much better than that. It was yeah, a beautiful. It, it brings the principles you just talked about to life. That was, a, that was a beautiful piece of work. It's rare that you can do that, where you can really, I guess, get to the essence of who that athlete is. Because all of these athletes and celebrities don't want to be known for being just an actor or just an athlete. The best ones deeply understand their brand and want to align with brands that they can co-create with. Yeah. And the Dwayne Wade spot was a perfect example of that. Yeah. It just showed who he is. Absolutely. So jumping to the Super Bowl, it's still in our industry, the pinnacle of advertising. I wouldn't say marketing, but advertising. Mm-hmm. I've never done one. You've never done a Super not Bowl in spot? This, not in this, ad, in this job, no. Oh, wow. That surprises mm-hmm. me. Why not? You know, we probably, I, I don't know that it was purposeful. We weren't mm-hmm. anti-Super Bowl. We, we d- it didn't fit with the business need of the time. We weren't doing a product launch or yeah. anything that really aligned to it. I'm all for it if it aligns to a strategy. But I think there are people who just do it to say they've done it and do it in a gimmicky way. And we really had to be sure we w- it wasn't us talking to ourselves, right? It's like the con lion thing. That's amazing. It's a great honor. Do it because the work works, right. not because you want no, absolutely. one. absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we did our first Super Bowl ad at P&G, I actually ran a contest. Did you? And I said, whoever is the best creative, I'll pay for it corporately. That's smart. So I had like 25 brands. That's early crowdsourcing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we had all this great stuff. And the brands that didn't get number one, they did it anyway. They did yeah. the work. And then we had a big reveal. We had a big meeting to reveal all the ideas. We made a lot of fun out of it, made a competition, and it just elevated everything. That's a great idea. And that's how we used it in the early days anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. so what's your favorite Super Bowl ad of all time? You know, the one that sticks with me, because there have been so many that are, you know, could be feature films. They're gorgeous. But the one that really hit me was the HQ ad two years ago. Do you remember this ad? Say more. It was a 15. Yeah. And it was in the fourth quarter. So the cheapest of all buys. But the fourth quarter, it happened to be the Patriots-Atlanta game. I'm a big Patriots fan. And that was maybe one of the most exciting quarters in any Super Bowl Mm -hmm. ever, particularly if you're a Patriots fan. And they bought a 15 and they ran um, a user-generated piece of a woman winning HQ. And she loses her mind and she's won $11 and they took 15 minutes of that moment and just let it play. I I saw it. It went, it went viral of her losing her mind, winning $11 and then it went quiet and it just had the HQ logo at the end. And so what I liked about it was it was cheap and it was incredibly effective and it broke through this higher order purpose-driven, deeply emotional thing that ultimately became noise. And the cheap thing was the thing that stuck out. Very customer-centric too, right? Exactly. They knew their audience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Great example. So- They got lucky. Yeah, they got, (laughs) well, there was an insight behind it. Yeah. You know, they knew what they were doing. So I want to broaden now to talk about marketing versus, versus advertising. What are some, one marketing campaign or a few that you have not done that have kind of blown your mind and you said, wow, 
We talked about Budweiser. Yeah, they just the did Kaepernick campaign. Yeah. The Kaepernick. Say more. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's everything that Nike does. I mean, they, there was a spot that I, I posted on Twitter. You saw it mm-hmm. of a athlete that had cerebral palsy yep. that ran a race again, all user generated real, not user generated. It was real content. And then Nike gives him a contract at the end. Um, I thought what was so fascinating about the Nike Kaepernick campaign, they really knew their consumer. Um, it's hard to take risks like that. It's hard to take risks like that in any brand, particularly you know brands mm-hmm. like ours. But they deeply understood, I think, their consumer and and how people would react. And while there was a lot of talk in the industry about that ad, and um, it got a lot of attention, it drove sales because they understood their consumers so clearly, and because equality was such a core part of their value proposition and the athletes they represent, and they had defined what equality meant to them. Mm-hmm. So you're, I see you on social media about gun rights, mm-hmm. and I see you on social media about poverty. Mm-hmm. Why are those so important for you? Uh, the gun safety thing is a very long story, but it, um, there are two things. One, after Newtown happened, my children were an hour away from that school. They were six and four at the time, and it hit me that moment that this wasn't something that happened to other people who lived out West or in different places that that could have been my child. And I ended up the chairman of the board of this Sandy Hook promise of the families that formed an organization after that tragedy. And they dedicated their life to this cause. And I thought, God, can't we just get there on empathy alone? Do you have to wait until someone in your family is shot? And then I started to learn more about it. This is a personal cause for me. This is not a, know, a, a business cause. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's something that marketers have a skill that can contribute to bridging a false binary argument of are you for or against, or are you this or that? It's not about that. Mm-hmm. It's just about saving lives. And people will approach it from different ways of, is it about you know safe storage? Is it about different cultural phenomena? Is it about suicide prevention? But can we all get aligned on a higher order of saving lives? And can we take the skills that we have as marketers and instead of selling things, help bridge an unnecessarily binary narrative and a lot of misinformation that goes out there? So I felt passionate about it from two fronts that I thought, I'd love to cure pancreatic cancer, right? It killed my father. It kills people, brilliant people, people every year. Uh, I can't. But I do know how to shape a narrative, and so that was uh, mm-hmm. that was important to me. And on the poverty piece, again, it's a it's a solvable problem. Um, it's a problem that business has a real role to play in solving, and it's a it's a problem that our brand has a role to play because when it comes down to uh, financial equality, the path out of poverty and and inequality of any kind is often money and helping people with their money. Yeah. Beautiful. So I have a lightning round for you at the end. Okay. So if we can go through this. Yeah. I want you to tell me your favorite non-JP Morgan Chase brand, a brand that you cannot live without. Uh, Saqqara. Why? It's a home delivery, uh, plant-based food. So to your point about the food being yep. important fuel. They are, I met the founder at a conference and I'm addicted. Do you, have, do you use it every week? Oh, yeah. Super. Mm-hmm. So are you reading any books now? I just finished Factfulness 
um, which is an amazing book. It also talks about the for and against and how yeah. the world is getting better. So if you're an optimist and you're mm-hmm. sort of depressed by the state of the world, you should pick up that book. And then I'm going to, I think, either read David Kidder's new book, New to Big. Yeah, I just finished it. It's um, great. Or some type of guilty pleasure because I'm going to Miami next week. All right. <laughs> Sitting For you. Beach. Yes. Right. Read both. So one on the plane, one when you're there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So is, are you watching any series now that you love? Um, as anyone who knows me, I was not a Game of Thrones person. And then in the past, whatever, since season seven ended, I've watched them all. My rule was I could only watch them when I was on the treadmill. So right. I've now yep. watched, because who's going to watch 80 right. hours of TV? Right. But if I can watch 80 hours of TV and I look forward actually, yep. to watching a whole episode on the treadmill. So I'm caught up and I'm freaking out about season eight coming Here on. It comes. Here it a- comes. And then I'm going to miss actually the first one because I'm Have at Have you bought the Oreos? Talking about the Oreos, Game of Thrones? No, no, but I, like the where is the throne? And I use the analogy all the time when people are doing corporate infighting. I'm like, you're like the Lannisters and the Starks and the Targaryens and the army of the dead is at the, the wall. language. <laughs> <laughs> and half the time people will nod and the other half will be like, what is she talking I'm about? I'm watching Patriot now. It's so quirky, so dark, so good. Well, after Game of Thrones, I had to watch The Crown because I like yeah, needed something else yeah. after that. And yeah. that was also amazing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. favorite fit class or fitness activity? I got a mirror. Do you like to run? I no. I know because my knees are kind of given out, so but you, you I do classes. Um, I I do the mirror. I have um classes on my iPad, and the great yeah. thing about the mirror is you can do it at home. You can do yoga. Yeah. You can do boxing. You can do anything. Yeah. So it's kind of fun. All right. Any podcasts that you're listening to now? Yours. Oh, very. <laughs> Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Exactly. First Everybody must be watch. It's really compelling. And finally, the biggest. You've said a lot about your passions over the last hour. Your your biggest passion in the world right now. Uh, my kids, yeah. making sure I get that right. You realize they're 12 and 10 now, that it's, a, it's not that big a window of time that they're under my care and I'm shaping to the best I can. Mine are I grown can. up and I'm, where'd that go? Well, it's, I've now started where'd to sort go? of see she's out of the house in five and a half years. Like that, and you know, to me, she's still a little girl. So them, the Boston Red Sox. And, um, you know, trying to have a positive impact on the world. <laughs> well, that's good. Anyone else that you think we should get on this that you would find really interesting? We have everyone um, said yes, by the way, who we've invited. We have about 10 more lined up. I think Michelle Peluso at IBM is really interesting. Yeah. She's yeah. just really smart. Yeah. Really smart. She's highly technical. And Fiona Carter at AT&T. Yeah. Beautiful, Kristen. Thank you for being a guest on the CMO podcast. It has been wonderful. Thank you, Jim. I can't wait to hear the ones to come. That was my conversation with Kristen Lemkow. So something that surprised me in my conversation with Kristen was, you know, I asked her her favorite Super Bowl ad of all time. First of all, J.P. Morgan Chase has never advertised in the Super Bowl, which I was kind of surprised at. But I thought she'd say, you know, this Budweiser ad or this Nike ad or this, you know, Ram ad. And she said it was an HQ ad because it was so quirky, so funny, so unexpected and so much about the customer. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.